The Energy Gang is sponsored by Mission Solar Energy, a solar cell and module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar is proud to be part of America's booming solar industry. The company's manufacturing facility supports 400 U.S. workers directly contributing to the country's burgeoning clean energy economy. That's not the only benefit of being located in the U.S. Mission Solar's Texas-based headquarters make it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. With a state-of-the-art R&D lab, Mission Solar pushes cutting-edge technology to the consumer after passing it through the highest reliability testing the solar industry has to offer. Come meet the Mission Solar team at Solar Power International in Las Vegas from September 12th through the 15th. They'll be at booth 1059. Again, that's booth 1059 at Solar Power International. And for those who are not at the event, check out Mission Solar's modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, we hop around to a few U.S. states where there's been a lot of action. Nevada, California, and Florida. So let's travel there, shall we? Only one of us is located in any one of those states. I'm in New Hampshire today, and Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions is in Washington, D.C. Hi, how are you doing? Excellent. How's it going this afternoon for you? Great. It's pretty hot here. I heard heard it's like living under a wool blanket there. Pretty pretty much is, which feels awesome, by the way. I wonder how the weather is in Mexico, because that's where Jigger is. And joining us as a guest host from Los Angeles in his place is our senior reporter, Julia Piper. Hey, Julia, how are you? Hey, I'm great, thanks. You know, Julia, you're a woman of many talents, and I don't know if you lead with this at cocktail parties, but one of those talents is tracking all the policy and regulatory activity in states across the country. So individually, they're not always headline-grabbing stories on their own, but taken together, they illustrate this remarkable shift that our country's electric sector is going through. And we're going to look at a few of those states today. As I said, California... Nevada and Florida, and we'll start with Nevada first. So the fallout there from the decision to end net metering last December continues. After more than nine months, it looks like we're we're going to get a new hearing from the state's PUC on whether 31,000 existing solar customers will be grandfathered into old net metering rules. So let's remember, we've talked about this a couple times on the show, last year's change to net metering included everyone in the state, including those who had signed contracts under old rules. So that decision brought widespread condemnation because it wasn't just a change looking forward. It was a change that was applied to all customers. So Julia, you've been keeping your eyes on a lot as we get closer to these hearings and so much has happened over the last nine months. What's the state of play right now moving into September as we look toward these hearings in a week or two? Yeah. So As you mentioned, at the end of uh, last year, the decision came out, and in January, the new rates went into effect. Um, They effectively uh, triple the fixed charges and bring down the net metering credit from $0.09 to $2.6. That timeline was extended in February. It was originally going to transition over time and implement those new rates over four years. And then in February, the regulators decided to make that a 12-year transition timeline but still no grandfathering. Everyone would be on that 12-year timeline. That was the best that that solar advocates got. And the energy came out at the time and said they were pro-grandfathering. 
but they didn't actually file anything concrete on that until late July. And so that's what sparked um, this new uh, discussion around grandfathering. NV Energy in late July then submitted advice letters uh, requesting formally to begin a discussion around grandfathering. Um, so that's set to begin on September 19th. Um, and there's uh, supposed to be hopefully a decision by September 28th. In between that timeline, a bunch of other things happened. Um, we had a ballot initiative that was read, led by solar advocates supported by Solar City that was struck down. Um, those advocates now have an option to go and get signatures to go to the legislature requesting action on uh, reversing the rate change, but that's going to take a lot of effort and it sounds like so far they're not going to pursue that. Instead, they're going to work with the task force that was created to uh, help the governor, Governor Sandoval, craft legislation next year and work with legislators to try and get a, a bill that way rather than get the signatures and then just end up trying to get a bill another way. So we're, they're coalescing around uh, trying to come up with some legislation in the new year. And in that context, NV Energy came out with their advice letters. So it seemed as though things were already headed toward trying to implement some form of grandfathering. And now we have the proceeding on it, which is really the fast track way of, of going about it, because really it has to go back to the PUC regardless. So now we're going to have some discussion on grandfathering. Solar City was initially barred from participating just in the last week or so. And then the chairman, Paul Thompson, reversed his decision and decided to let Solar City ultimately come back and participate. So that was another little wrinkle. Looks like everyone's ready to go now. Well, man, there's a lot of tension here, some of which feels a little unnecessary to me. You know, in the lead up, maybe like a year and a half ago, there there was a lot of like aggression from within the solar industry. And now you've seen this aggressive backlash in the regulatory sphere kind of led by Paul Thompson. And it just feels to me like there's so much unnecessary friction in this process. Um, I Do you really have a sense for why SolarCity was barred? It seems like Paul Thompson's argument was that they didn't represent all solar customers or rate payers. And I'm just not quite understanding the legal rationale behind his decision, which obviously, as you said, was reversed. Did did he give any other indications or did you hear from other folks about why that was the case in the first place? Commissioner Thompson felt that selling someone solar equipment does not mean you have a right to represent their interests in a regulatory setting. But the reality is different. Solar City has been advocating on behalf of these customers in the ballot initiative, um, in work with legislators, it, they really are taking up the role of representing those customers because that they're their selected provider. These customers chose Solar City, and I see that there's clearly a strong relationship there. And I think that's ultimately why Commissioner Thompson reversed his decision. It just in in the reality of the situation, they do represent a a, a meaningful role in in the state and for those consumers. Yeah, I mean, these consumers who've signed a long-term contract under a net metering rate, their finances are tied up with this company now too. And they're, you know, SolarCity is acting like a utility for these com- for these customers. So it's not just about selling equipment. It's a completely intertwined relationship. And it sounds like there was finally some recognition of that. One of the more fascinating twists here was this dramatic reversal um, by E3 this analysis firm that put together a report a couple years ago showing that 
There were tens of millions of dollars in ratepayer benefits associated with distributed solar. All of a sudden, we saw this new report come out in August that showed that all those benefits had been reversed and that rooftop solar was causing $36 million in costs to all ratepayers around Nevada. And that was because economic conditions had changed in the state. As you pointed out in your story, uh, it was due to pricing in utility-scale installations, kind of offsetting the benefit for small-scale solar and natural gas prices. This caused some waves in Nevada. I know that SIA was really upset, and Tom Kimbis came out and wrote an op-ed in the Huffington Post slamming the report. I don't know that there was much uh, fact-based writing behind that that piece, but you can tell that there's a lot of messaging going on in the, in the solar industry to try to counter this piece of research, which all of a sudden changes the conversation in Nevada again. How significant was that E3 report that you also just wrote about? I think it's significant. It'll be taken into account. There are a couple of things to note with this. As you mentioned, uh, E3 went in and accurately accounted for the price of utility scale solar in, in their in their metrics there and the cost of natural gas. Uh, they also took into account what consumers in Nevada pay for all solar incentive programs. So that includes other rebates and things like that. So the grandfathering cost shift is not the 36 million, it's 15 million per year, which is close to what the regulators found. They found a $16 million per year cost shift. So important to distinguish there between those, those numbers. 20 million of the 36 is for other incentive programs. And also that $15 million per year cost shift is only 0.5% in a customer's residential bill, which in Nevada is about 11 cents. So 0.25% of 11 cents is what the grandfathering cost shift is. So to put those numbers in perspective. Another thing to think about is that the E3 study did not factor in all 11 criteria that the regulators themselves in Nevada identified as being relevant to the value of solar. That is what Solar City and NRDC tried to look at in their study, which came out a few months prior. And in that study, they found that there was a $7 million to $14 million benefit, depending on which factors you look at. So you do have these two competing studies, the latest E3 one and a Solar City and NRDC one. And they look at different factors, which in all of these discussions is so relevant. Is like what is going to be taken into account when you calculate the value of solar. And Arizona is going to go through that right now as they conduct their value of solar proceeding. Yeah, so. it's hard to calculate because you can't you can't factor in um, operating your grid to maximize the value. So the the grid is actually the storage medium for solar, and that's really hard to calculate when you do these studies. I reached out to um, Senator Reid, the minority leader in the Senate, who's retiring um, and has been a huge uh, is from Nevada and has been a huge proponent for solar. And their office sent a note to Secretary Moniz, a letter that basically said, you know. This is really a huge issue. There are dozens of proceedings over rates um, in, on the distribution side, and evaluating these consumer side energy resources is really difficult. And he wants them to try to, to give regulators a lot more tools and consistent tools to use, because I think part of the issue is they're just all over the map. And I know this is probably a little too late for what Nevada is doing right now, but it would be really helpful for a Department of Energy to step in and do something that would be really credible and that would have consistent metrics behind it. You know, SEPA actually just released a report this week looking at um, the locational value of distributed energy resources 
sort of focusing on that alone. And I think that's pretty smart. They're trying to, each of these factors is complex in and of itself. And they picked one really important one and tried to provide some methodology around that. And maybe that's what we'll see more of is people coalescing around which factors should be in there and then how to evaluate those factors. Clearly that's a lot of work, but it's what New York's trying to do. And if there is a methodology that can be applied in multiple states, that would be a big win. Well, you know, one thing I'm really hopeful about is that some of the solar companies like SolarCity and Sunrun uh, recently have been hiring regulators. So, you know, SolarCity hired John Wellinghoff, who knows a lot about FERC and understands value streams and understands how to um, think about that. And then Sunrun recently hired Ann Hoskins uh, to fill Brand Miller's spot. And she was a regulator in Maryland, had worked for a utility prior, really understands rate cases, really understands distributed energy resources and how to value them. And I I think that's going to really help the solar industry to have folks like that in there who not only are experts on understanding regulation, but also can understand where the other parties are coming from and could potentially be more collaborative in process. Yeah, I think there's been a shift in tone around collaboration in general, listening to the Nehruk town hall. You saw Vote Solar and SIA, and I think just a lot of solar players using the word collaboration and cooperation and trying to find solutions there. One thing to add, I think, though, on the E3 study, um, this is, and this comes from John Wellinghoff, um, you know, they were clearly disappointed with that study, um, but he pointed out the timeline of it. I think it was, according to him, it was requested by regulators, and they, they asked the legislator to request it, in fact. So the legislature has a interim committee on energy that was meeting, they had their last meeting, I think last week or the week before, and they, as part of the lead up to that meeting, requested the E3 study. That's how it came to be. They didn't actually even take up that study in their legislative meeting. And according to Wellinghoff, that's because that study didn't go through any of the normal vetting processes. It wasn't peer reviewed. And for that reason, the legislators who initially requested it threw it out. And then it ended up in its own docket and whether or not, I don't know for sure whether the legislators put it in a docket or the regulators went ahead and put it in a docket, but somehow it ended up there and it's in a docket that's not live. People can't comment on it according to Solar City, So it just is living there. So they were upset in how it even came to be because it wasn't properly vetted and went through this back and forth between the different government branches and then was suddenly out in the world without any review. So that's another little wrinkle. Well, Nevada is a good test case for the new strategy of the solar industry. Let's go to California now, where uh, diplomacy didn't always reign in the legislature there, but there were a lot of bills passed right before the legislature closed for the session. Uh, That closure ended with an unprecedented amount of activity around energy and climate. The list of bills that were passed sounded to me like an army of robots and not legislation. You had SB 32, AB 197, AB 1550, AB 1937, and AB 2454. The big one was SB 32, which expanded California's greenhouse gas reduction target. And the states now got to cut emissions 40% below 1990 levels by 2030. New York State recently passed a target that uh, requires it to cut 
uh, greenhouse gas emissions 40% below 1990 levels and 80% by 2050. But California now rivals New York's, and California is a much bigger economy. California is actually the sixth biggest economy in the world. It recently surpassed France, and this target is a pretty big deal. I mean, think about that. Uh, uh, the sixth largest economy is passing a target that strong, and California now needs to dig really deep to achieve that target. Julia, give us another quick rundown of all the activity in the final days of the legislative session there in California. There were a bunch of things that were passed. Yeah, there were a bunch passed, and I'll just list a few that were interesting to me. Um, AB uh, 1550 guarantees that at least 35% of California's greenhouse gas fund um, will benefit underserved communities. There was another bill, AB 1937, that also looks to benefit uh, areas where there's significant pollution in the state. There were four bills passed on energy storage. Um, two interesting ones, 1637 looks to double California's self-generation incentive program, the SGIP program. Uh, 2868 would allow the state's three largest utilities to develop an additional 500 megawatts of storage capacity. So those are interesting. Oh, there's also SB 859 that allocates $900 million of the next year's cap and trade budget to advanced energy investments. So there's a slew of things. There's plenty, plenty more than that even. And I think they're either all signed now or headed to the governor and are expected to be signed imminently. Yeah, it strikes me, Julia, that the a lot of the bills that passed for storage and other clean energy are going to really support that greenhouse gas goal. So it's really good that they doubled the S-chip budget, um, as you said, and that they allowed for more utility ownership of storage, although that one's a little tricky because um, I think the, the issue would be for companies to all be able to participate and compete equally for those projects. Um, and so I think they've set it up so the utilities actually have to have uh, permission from the CPUC, the, the Public Utility Commission, to um, approve those projects before they're allowed to own them. So just that was one one kind of wrinkle in it. But all of these tools are going to enable them to better meet those goals that are set on the greenhouse gas reductions. Yeah, it's really impressive how much they've taken on. And, and kind of, as you mentioned, it's it's this is just the start. There's a lot of sausage making to be done around, you know, how to structure the SGIP program, for instance, or the cap and trade program. That was one thing people were hoping to pass, I believe, was some more reforms around how that whole program structured but there wasn't much activity on that. I don't think anything ultimately passed. So definitely more work to be done. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of people who were calling for a carbon tax. They said, just scrap the cap and trade thing and issue a carbon tax, but you need a two-thirds majority in the legislature to issue a tax like that. And I know that there are some major legal challenges already around cap and trade because um, detractors say it's a tax and you needed that two-thirds majority and they didn't initially get it when it was first passed. Of course, California's cap-and-trade program is kind of going through its own struggles now. So we'll see how they can shore that up and if CARB can figure out a way to improve the cap-and-trade program in, in California. What was really remarkable to me, and I thought that Brad Plumer over at Vox spelled this out better than anybody I've seen write on this issue, is how dramatically different the environment is in California now as they ramp up their greenhouse gas emission targets. It's a pretty unique situation in that they're well, I wouldn't say it's unique because Germany tried to do this as well. They shut down a bunch of nuclear plants. But California is shutting down Diablo Canyon. 
And that represents, you know, 7% of generation in the state. And they're now trying to replace it all with efficiency and renewables. It's, uh, aside from Germany and maybe some other smaller countries, this is pretty unprecedented. And digging deep to get this 40% number will require broader changes throughout the California economy and not just in the electric sector. So we could walk through any number of um, possibilities in, in California. And there's this uh, Lawrence Berkeley lab report that came out a couple of years ago looking at every possible thing that California would need to do to reach the 40% target. And it's pretty remarkable, you know, the number of efficiency standards that it would have to pass beyond what it already has done, the amount of biofuels that it would need to procure, uh, public transportation it would need to beef up, uh, renewable electricity it would need to continue to expand, uh, which it already is because it has a recently expanded renewable energy target. It's all pretty remarkable. So we're at this unique point in history where we're phasing out certain types of generation and we're dramatically ramping up the targets and we don't have a clear pathway to get there and so it's kind of an experiment in california that is very exciting to witness yeah and it's such a large state that what you're what you're doing is you're setting a goal for an enormous area that has potentially much smaller load pockets and local requirements for example aliso canyon with the natural gas issue that's a very local issue and yet holistically the state has to meet larger requirements and so it's going to it's going to have to be a combination of statewide policy and also very local solutions not to sound too pollyannish but it's pretty amazing what people can do when you get a bunch of smart folks in a room and you know they agree on something and they find the solutions obviously there's opposition but in living in LA, you know, they just opened this new public transportation line from Santa Monica to downtown and it has been packed. I know this is one small example, but the change comes and sometimes it's super well received. And I think California is going to see some awesome things happen because it has the support and people are rallied behind it. I think it's pretty clear that California can probably achieve what it needs to in the electric sector. And that's the case for a lot of different states. But when you start getting into the industrial sector and transportation, that's when it gets a little hairier. Um, I think the real big, big elephant in the room in California is transportation and its zero emissions vehicle program has struggled. Electric vehicle sales are behind. Fuel cell car sales are ridiculously low. Uh, the, 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 you need to see 25% of the fleet be zero emissions vehicles by 2035, according to this Lawrence Berkeley lab report. And uh, they're at, you know, around a 1% penetration today. So I'm confident that these changes will happen in the electric sector. It is still anybody's guess how quickly California can make this happen in the industrial and in the transportation sectors. If you put the policy goals in place, like they did with the energy storage goal, you create entire new ecosystems of economic development, too. The number of companies in California that have started um, in energy storage alone is incredible and has created a whole new ecosystem. And I think that's going to happen in all the other sectors as new policies are put into place. Well, one thing I just am thinking about in switching from Nevada to California is just how much... Um, motivation plays into this. Um, one thing and I, in, in speaking with E3, one thing they mentioned was, okay, maybe there's a cost shift. In some places, Nevada or not, debate to be had, 
But in some places, there will be a cost shift. But then there's another discussion to be had about what is worth paying for. Is a $15 million per year, 0.5% residential rate increase worth it to you to combat climate change? And to some people, yeah, it, on the end of the day, it's worth it. And some people get solar and a new industry blooms and people's have, people have new jobs. And I think it's about taking a step back and putting these programs in place. And we kind of had amnesia about why net metering was created initially and why solar incentive programs were created. People wanted to foster new industries. California has got, gone all in on that. But now we're in such deep um, regulatory battles. Um, maybe it's worth taking a step back for legislators. I suppose it's really a question for them about where they want their state to go. Well, this is the closest thing we have in the U.S. to a no regrets climate policy. Let's go over to Florida for our last segment. Jigger talked about Florida briefly at the end of a recent show, but it's worth getting into in more detail. At the end of last month, voters in Florida passed an amendment that extends property tax exemptions to distributed energy systems. That includes solar PV, small wind, geothermal heat pumps, solar thermal. It's a short-term victory, uh, not a small one either. But coming up in November, voters must consider another ballot initiative supported by utilities that would create really squishy language, essentially preventing ratepayers from subsidizing solar. The initiative has stacked up the state's biggest utilities against a passionate set of libertarian and pro-renewable energy groups. Catherine, you are talking to people there in Florida. What is this new ballot initiative and how is the situation shaping up? Well, this is very complicated. I called on two people who were really smart and very involved in this initiative. One was Susan Glickman, who's the Florida director for the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy. And the other was Chris Castro, who's the director of sustainability for the city of Orlando and who also helped launch a couple of years ago this Floridians for Solar Choice Coalition. And this coalition is really wide ranging. So I know you mentioned it was utilities versus solar advocates, but the solar advocates are lots and lots of people. It's not, it's businesses, it's real estate folks, it's the restaurant association, retailers, um, universities, all kinds of people, elected officials. And on this amendment that you mentioned, they got 73% of the people who voted to, to vote for this amendment. And you only need 60% to pass an amendment. So this was the Floridians for Solar Choice Coalition. What they're up against is something called the Consumers for Smart Solar. And this is Florida Power and Light and the Koch brothers who've gotten together and put millions of dollars, um, multiple, like $20 million against $2 million, $2 or $3 million that the that the solar advocates are, are funding for this amendment number one. And, it's, and there's a lot of confusion that's been created. Um, the anti-solar folks are saying it's it's smartsolarfl.org, yes on one for the sun versus amendment one blocks the sun. Um, the utilities are creating this confusion. What they've done is in order to get the petition for this amendment, I heard they had been paying people $5 to sign it while they were wearing Florida's for Solar Choice t-shirts, so they made it look like they're with the other organization. Um, this constitutional amendment would doesn't look bad. It's like a wolf in sheep's clothing, as they called it. So one thing it would do is it would put into put into a constitutional amendment um, aspects that are already in law, statute that's already in law that 
that really you don't need to worry about, that it's already there. The other piece that it does is it says, um, we want choice, so there are no extreme charging. This is about consumer protection. And what they think that'll do is that could erode NIM. And the situation in Florida is this. They have no renewable portfolio standard. They have no RECs. They have no third-party PPAs. They have very low electric rates. They have a ton of sunshine. They're number three in resource for solar nationwide and number 14 in production. The only thing they have going for them right now is the NIM. And now they have this property tax, this um, personal property tax exemption that allows for third-party leasing to not have to pay tax because that was taking away all their benefits. So it is a very complex situation um, added with a lot of confusion from the anti-solar folks. But remember, in order to pass Amendment 1, they need 60% of the vote. So if as long as they can defeat it with 41%, it won't pass. You said something very important in the beginning there, Catherine, and that was the diversity of the pro-solar coalition. And I think that's actually the case around the country. When we use the term solar advocates, in the past, it implied environmental advocates, people on the left. But as evidenced in Florida, this is such a diverse range of people now. It's businesses, it's you know local business owners, it's a diverse range of rate pairs, it's a diverse range of political p- viewpoints. I mean, the pro-solar coalition is encompasses nearly everyone now. And I think that the situation in Florida shows that the utilities are getting kind of scared. Yeah, it's basically everybody but the utilities, Um, including, remember, Debbie Dooley, who we had on. So the Green Tea Party has been involved. So you have people on really opposite ends politically that are all coming together around solar. So one thing I'd add on Florida that I think is just sort of a side note, but is just the margin by which um, the Amendment 4 for the property taxes won, more than 70 percent of people being really pro-solar. And I think that's maybe an indication that the utilities will have a hard time if the advocates can clarify that language. They did just launch a new campaign this week aligning a bunch of bipartisan groups. So it sounds like they're stepping up their game uh, with a new website, et cetera. Yeah, and I think another important thing is that Amendment Number 4, which was the 73% margin one, is off the table now. It's done, so they can just focus on Amendment 1 and trying to prevent that from going through. Amendment 1, SB 32, AB 2454. My gosh, I'm just confused now. That is the regulatory conversation. Uh, There's so much going on. Really exciting times here. And uh, that's basically a summation of what's going on in some of the leading states. We'll, of course, have more as all these situations shake out. I think we'll wrap it up there and tell our listeners something they don't know. And Julia, as our special co-host this week, you get our first story. All right. Well, I have something you didn't realize you already knew, which is that, (laughs) yeah, had to impress on my first appearance. No, um, hat tip to David Ferris at E&E Publishing, Energy Wire. He had a great story out recently about the solar circle. It's called Inside Solar Secret Society. And uh, he basically chronicled how there's a, a group of solar insiders from across the industry, even journalists and advocates who've uh, dedicated themselves to making solar the dominant source of energy. So he did a great profile, talked uh, to a bunch of members and detailed how they meet. It it doesn't sound like there's something sneaky at play here. It's just really a group of uh, professionals and friends who've been sort of, you know, criticizing and supporting each other over the past, uh, I think, 14 years or so. So 
that was really interesting to realize that there's this group right hidden in plain sight that uh, I wish I had reported on if I'd only I'd known. So way to go, David. Yeah, well, one of the members is a member of the Energy Gang, actually. We're a not-so-secret society here. Anyway, we'll have to talk about this when he comes back on. And I had known about the Solar Circle because my boss, Jim Callahan at Renewable Energy World, many years ago was a part of it. And he's friends with a lot of the solar old guard. And kudos to David for really bringing out the details of this story. It is a good one. Highly recommend reading it. And then we'll talk with Jigger a little bit more about his involvement in a future show. Catherine, tell us something we don't know. Yeah, so I had the pleasure over Labor Day weekend of visiting some friends in West Virginia. Um, In fact, Marianne Hitt is the director of the Beyond Coal Campaign for the Sierra Club, and her husband, Than Hitt, um, works out in West Virginia too. And they're both really strong solar advocates. And they pointed me to a company called Solar Holler. Um, It's got a great website, solarholler.com, and with a miner on it, Mining the Sun. And it's really a very grassroots uh, effort in West Virginia with Coalfield Development Corporation to convert coal jobs into solar jobs. And they're using really creative ways of getting solar on rooftops. So there was a church that had their members of the congregation work together on getting solar panels through the demand response market. They've done um, lots of projects on the grassroots level, and they're retraining coal miners into solar jobs. And I, I love seeing things like that happen in La- Appalachia and was really excited to read about this. Yeah, that's how you make solar and renewables work in that region. That's the exact kind of thing that we need right now. I have been on a couple trips recently, one of which was in New York. I went to go see Gil Quinones, who is the CEO of the New York Power Authority, and I want to get him on the podcast soon. Really smart guy, very forward-thinking. The New York Power Authority is, of course, the largest public power organization in the country and uh, an early pioneer in power generation when it was created in 1931. And now, as part of the REV initiative there in New York, it has to figure out how to enable more renewables on the transmission grid. It's reaching out to its government and commercial customers and getting further behind the meter and starting to think about how to offer behind-the-meter energy services um, to meet a pretty strict energy efficiency goal laid out by Governor Cuomo. And I will have a video of that. We put together kind of a promotional video of the work that NIPA is doing, but had a really great conversation with Gil Quinones and was pretty impressed with the stuff that they've got going on at NIPA. And I think I'd like to have him on the show sometime. So a shout out, shout out to NIPA. And that's all for the show this week, folks. Thanks to Mission Solar Energy for sponsoring the podcast. We appreciate it. Go check them out at Solar Power International at booth 1059. And uh, thanks to you for listening. We really appreciate it. We've noticed some some uh, new reviews and ratings on iTunes, which are really helpful. If you haven't done that already, go check it out. And if you're not a subscriber to this podcast, for whatever reason, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Overcast. Gosh, there are so many podcast apps out there now, and we're on all of them. We're also on NPR One as well, so you can find us there. And uh, we've been getting a lot of emails lately as well. We love your show ideas. You can reach out to us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. With Catherine Hamilton and Julia Piper, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Mm-hmm.